1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Kathy Ferguson, author of Letterpress Revolution, The Politics of Anarchist Print Culture, published by Duke University Press in February, 2023. In Letterpress Revolution, Kathy Ferguson challenges the stock image of the anarchist as a masked bomb thrower or brick thrower and argues that a more representative figure should be a printer at a printing press. This book explores the importance of anarchist printers whose materials anarchist movements across the United States and Great Britain um, made use of from the late 19th century to the 1940s. These printers did extensive work to organize the text on the page, while also creating extensive correspondence with fellow anarchists. They did more than report on the movement, they were a part of it, and their vitality in anarchist communities helps explain anarchism's remarkable persistence in the face of continuous harassment, arrest, assault, deportation, and exile. By looking at the political material and aesthetic practices of anarchist print culture, this book points to possible methods for cultivating contemporary political resistance. Kathy Ferguson is a professor of political science and women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Kathy, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. Um, Before we start talking about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself with listeners, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your research on anarchist politics and anarchist print culture.
1: Sure. Thank you for asking. Um, I grew up on a farm in Indiana um, in the sort of iconic 1950s when the family farm was You know, somehow representative of the Midwest, even though it was a, a, even then a uh, somewhat obsolete political economy. Uh, But it was a great way to grow up. Um, And I went to Purdue University um, to be a veterinarian. That was my goal. Um, And I then discovered political theory, which I didn't know existed. And I said, wow, you can think like that. And then I was hopelessly lost after that. So then I went to graduate school in political theory at the University of Minnesota and I taught for almost a decade at a small liberal arts college in upstate New York, Siena College, before getting my current job at the University of Hawaii. And in that little, in that sort of itinerary I just described, it was, it was a really good time to go to college in the late 60s and early 70s. So this farm girl from Indiana encountered the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement, the beginnings of the ecology movement, the counterculture. And it just was mind blowing that those things happened and that people thought that way. And it was so attractive. Um, I wanted to understand where do, where do critical ideas come from? How do these sort of semi outsider Points of view that are both critical of established ways of doing things and very creative about inventing different ways of doing things. How does that happen, and uh, and what sustains it? There was a a, a, a famous chant that second wave feminists, young second wave feminism, used in the seventies and eighties, and it was Emma said it in nineteen ten. Now we're going to say it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I really wanted to see, you know that of course, was a reference to Emma Goldman. Yeah, and I yeah. wanted to see how the echoes of earlier radicalism still sustain us today.
0: yeah, that's that's such an amazing trajectory. Um, yeah. So turning now to your book to letter press Revolution, I really loved the range of aspects of print-based media ecology that you bring together in the book, and your really clear demonstration of how writing and publishing have been at the heart of anarchist communities. Could you talk more about what motivated you to write this book, and the main goals you had for this project?
1: Well, it was kind of by accident, which I think is how a lot of things happened mm-hmm. um, in the research world. Um, which is that I was writing a book about Emma Goldman, which Roman and Littlefield published in 2011. And that book also took a very long time because I wanted to locate Goldman within the anarchist movement, not just as um, an individual rebel, but as a participant in a larger collective practice. And I kept coming across printers. And, you know it would just be a casual mention so and so was a printer and so and so was a printer. and, and like wh- where are all these printers? why so many printers? And uh, then in the correspondence between two of the people I like to call my printers uh, they're not really mine but you know they feel that way. Um, um, one of them mentioned to another, this was in the early 20th century a book by Barbara Tuckman the famous historian, called The Proud Tower, which has a chapter on the anarchist movement. And in that book, Barbara Tuckman says, did a bunch of printers become anarchists? Did a bunch of anarchists become printers? What's going on? And then she just leaves it. She doesn't do anything with it. But I thought, well, that's okay, if Barbara Tuckman thinks this is a good question, then I think it's a good question too. And so I, I uh, just kept, I, I, I laughed. I joke about myself that my methodology consists of over and over and over saying, oh, look, there's another one. Oh, look, there's another one. And pretty soon I have a list in the back of my book. I have about 175 people that I've come across that I can confirm were printers, either directly in the anarchist movement or in a very nearby uh, kind of radical space. And, And I know there's more. I just know there's more. So... I I just started seeing all these printers. And then of course you have to say, well, what difference did it make that there were all these printers? Well, obviously they could print things, but but what else? And so then I just started, I realized that that I needed to read sort of the background stuff. I, I found, because a lot of times the journals they either don't mention who the printer was or it's a tiny, tiny little print at the very end of the journal. Mm -hmm. And you don't really know what it refers to Mm -hmm. uh, other than a a print shop probably, but, in the correspondence that I read, um, anarchists are enthusiastic epistolarians. There are <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and thousands of thousands of letters. And so I started reading their letters. And often one printer to another printer would say, well, what do you do when the inside of the letter fills up with too much ink? And what happens when the, there's this rough thing and you have to? And so then you could see them at work on the page, you know, sharing their labor and and consulting with with each other so so that led me to think yeah this is uh, uh there's something going on here and that hook that you feel as a researcher there's something going on here just kept pulling me
0: in yeah oh, that's exciting I mean I, I yeah I love thinking about the things that capture us into specific research projects and um, so building you know on that um, those, those conversations that you found about these like real mechanisms of printing in the first chapter, you look at the mechanics and the processes of printing in anarch- anarchist communities. Um, and you wrote that in their publications, anarchists practice prefigurative politics. So you examine how the printing equipment is as important in these communities as the material that's produced. Um And I loved the term little optical machines that you took up in that chapter and the agency this gives to um, the mechanisms of production. So could you share more with listeners about the work that letterpress Letterpress printing has done in anarchist communities and why your focus on method as much as product is so important for understanding the work that's being done by anarchist publishing projects? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, it wasn't what I thought I was going to be writing about, but it just kept tapping me on the shoulder. And in part, it was that I discovered there are living anarchist letterpress printers. That letterpress has Mm -hmm. made a bit of a comeback since the late 20th century and continuing today. And so I started finding them and interviewing them Mm -hmm. and watching them, watching what they were doing and, and seeing this sort of elaborate Language dance that was taking place between the person and the the, the technology and all of the elements, of the technology, the ink and the paper, um, and the the sensorium of the printery is very powerful. It has ink has a certain smell, paper has a certain smell. It has a tactilness. You you know that the, there's a reason that in big newspaper shops, printers used to wear hats. Made out mm-hmm. of old newspapers to try to keep the ink out of their hair. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and of course, their hands, and and then there's the, the, there's a there are predictable impacts on your body that come from doing this labor. Um, and it, this the sensorium that sort of the taste, the smell, the feel, the sight, the sound, and how they aren't separate. They all are working together to produce the presence of the printery. Um, I, I saw that in the people I was interviewing, and I also saw it in the correspondence of the people from the time period I'm studying, which was mm-hmm. the Paris Commune to the Spanish Revolution, which is roughly 1870 to 1938, about, I say 1940, mm-hmm. so it's easier. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I would see like accounts of everybody gathering in the print shop and the, the, and there may be one trained printer and that the other people would pitch in and they'd learn how to do some of this. And sometimes they would become full-on typesetters, which is a very highly skilled work and it takes time to get good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> or they'd become what's called pressmen, which means they press the paper onto the ink. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or they'd become bookbinders, uh, which means they sew the binding, um, mm-hmm. finish the finish the publication. So... Um, So I just kept seeing reference to or interviewing people and hearing that it wasn't just another place to go to work. There was other stuff happening there. It drew people. Printeries were busy places where people hung out. And sometimes the printer would get grouchy and say, everybody get out of here. You're in my way. But they'd come back because they wanted to be there. That was a happening place. Um, So... So that, that drew me in. And then I've always really loved the anarchist notion of prefigurative politics. I, I think that I, I say in, in this book, and I actually said it in Goldman book too, but hasn't caught on yet, that the um, the, tri- the typical bromide that people say about anarchism is, oh, it's a nice idea in theory, but it would never work in practice. And I think it's actually the reverse is the case. Mm-hmm. That the theory needs some work, but the practice is amazing. That what anarchists do and what they sustain over decades is a kind of changing the world by acting as though it has already changed, by by living and working in the world that you want, mm-hmm. by making it happen around you. You know, yeah. prefiguring the, yeah. your goals. Not just by hoping they'll come, but by living them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think that a lot of the anarchist journals did. And a lot of the printers and and the printeries enabled that. And that it was, it, it was a, it generates a kind of energy. And I've always thought, one of the things that's fascinating about anarchism is there's really no more belittled movement in the world right when Mm -hmm. anybody a politician a media person anybody wants to say something is bad they call it anarchy Mm -hmm. and so you know we we don't get a lot of good press and so how could a movement sustain itself with that level of vigor over decades and decades in the face of exile and execution and arrest and harassment and impoverishment and how did they keep doing it. And the the usual explanation is well, they were just a bunch of fanatics. And you know, they just were, you know, bullheaded and couldn't couldn't change their mind and couldn't change the subject, which is the traditional definition of a fanatic. And okay, there was probably some fanatics in there. They were a diverse crowd, but that doesn't explain how a movement happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a movement has to have a collective energy. It's not just this person plus this person plus this person. It's a bigger Uh, set of relationships. And so I just had this hunch that that it that the little optical machines of the journal that that I'm glad you like that phrase, I borrow that from Jacques Ranciere, the, the French philosopher, and he uh, uses pages are a, are a kind of little optical machine so would an exhibit be in a museum or you know a diorama uh, in a place that where meaning making is happening but I like that he calls them little optical machines because it gets across the point that they are doing something mm-hmm. so, so the page of the journal freedom in London or the journal free society in San Francisco or Joseph Fishel's work in New Jersey the page is not just a passive place for recording things that happen elsewhere it's an active maker of meaning in the way that the page is produced that pick pages i i learned this from a printer and and it's always stuck with me that even the white space is printed Mm. because the printer has to decide for every teeny bit of that page does what does something go on it yeah so not put not putting something on it is an act of printing, right? right? Because you you've maintained the the non-printed, you've maintained the whiteness of the page or the pinkness or whatever color of the pages, the yes. blankness of the page, and then the organization of those spaces and how they lead the eye, and uh, some journals um, like Joseph Fischl, he printed. He was called one of the fine printers of anarchism. Mm. Was often compared to william morris in england who was better known because he was you know a successful businessman as well as a radical printer um but what Ischel would do would would be to have very spacious margins uh especially on the side the right side and the bottom mm-hmm. and use many different cu- kinds of fonts and have that big letter at the beginning of a paragraph the kind of that sort of Canterbury Tales look, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. biblical look, you know, that big ornate letter to draw the reader in. Yeah. And then these little things that I'm very fond of called florons, which are little that you put between the articles right. to, to encourage the reader to pause, to give the eye something else to look at and to um, um, like
0: to create thinking space. Yeah
1: thinking space. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah.
1: So that the the little optical machines. And sometimes they create it differently, like Freedom in London, which was the is still the best known and longest running anarchist periodical in the world that I'm aware of. Um it's much more like it was more economical. They printed uh they weren't trying to be artistic. They were trying because none of them had any money, right? And right. so every blank space was cost money Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and so they they had much more crowded pages with no very few illustrations and one kind of font maybe Mm -hmm. two and um even there the mastheads were often works of art yeah yeah so i i just i i don't and i don't think that was a lesser optical page That was just a different optical page
0: absolutely yeah
1: yeah it made it it did a different job
0: Yeah. yeah 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 um yeah, the intention, the intentionality in all of it, how all of it is done is really, um, really amazing. And the the picture that you paint of people getting together in these print shops, you know, after their day jobs, gathering with food and with with family and friends. It's um, yeah, I think that's part of the, the prefigurative um, side of things of, of building the community that will do the work. Yeah. Um,
1: I like that
0: the kids
1: that went to the anarchist schools, they learned printing. Yeah. They learned print shops. And decades later, when they were interviewed by uh, Paul Averick, a philosopher, a scholar at Princeton who passed away recently, who's the grand old man of anarchist research in the, in the United States. Anyway, they Averick interviewed all these aging anarchists in the 70s and 80s. Many of them had been to the modern schools and they mm. said over and over how much they love setting type.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Um, Well, shifting to your second chapter, uh, you then look at a different understanding of letters, focusing on genre, and you write that um, through correspondence between anarchist printers and print collectors, the anarchist movement writes itself in layers of written transmissions. Could you share some examples with listeners of the correspondence that you explored and why we should understand this correspondence as more than just individual communication, but as part of building the anarchist movement itself.
1: Thank you. I am very fond of the women and men in this chapter because I really got to know them in reading the correspondence. Um, And uh, I had never studied epistolarity before. There was so much new to me in Mm -hmm. this, what I needed to learn to write this book, but I came to understand that the, I mean, theorists say this all the time, but it's hard to really get it in a concrete setting. The form and the content are not separable. Mm. That what a text does and how a text does it are mutually interconnected, that they make each other happen. And and that, like letters, you feel like like you start reading people's letters because you just want to know what happened to them. Like, you know, were you active in the movement? What did you do? That's what I was originally thought I would find out mm-hmm. um, was kind of the facts of people's lives. And that's in there too. But um, what you what you do, what, uh, my colleague Liz Wingrove at University of Michigan has, look, has, has looked at letters from uh, incarcerated people in France during the ancien regime and from her I learned that you need to make a transition from reading the letter as information to reading it as a text and like any text it operates in certain ways it has characteristic ways of drawing in or pushing out readers It, it has its own characteristic form of um of presentation, like, for example, in letters, it's the only kind of writing I know of where the writer always or nearly always expects the reader to become the writer. So you you write back and or else you refrain from writing back. But the possibility of writing back is built into a letter in a way that's different than other written uh, communication. And so that interactiveness from the ground up in letters um made me see the um the movement building <laughs> dimension of these letters and just there are so many of them. Uh, Emma Goldman is estimated by her first biographer Richard Drennan to have written 200,000 letters in yeah. her life. And now that's probably more than most but there were some others that were right there behind her yeah. to in in at Harvard, in the Joseph Ischel collection, Initial being the New Jersey printer I mentioned, mm-hmm. that's 40 boxes. And they're big, huge archive boxes that are nearly all letters. Mm-hmm. And um, so just the sheer weight of all those letters makes you think, these people couldn't have been wasting their time. They, something was of value here mm-hmm. to them more than exchanging information or staying in touch. That, that was part of a bigger thing. Um, and so then, um, if I could tell you about a few of the yeah. people, I I picked three women who were very active correspondents in this period of time, the, basically the late 19th through the early 20th centuries. Um, well, these particular people, it was the early 20th century. Um, Agnes Inglis was the curator, the first curator of the Lobbity collection at Michigan. Mm-hmm. and the way she became the curator was that she her friend joe Lobbity, um who was an anarchist printer in detroit said agnes i gave all my i donated all my material to the university of michigan and I, I don't think they're doing anything with it could you check so agnes who lived down the street went over to the library and sure enough it was all in a big bunch of boxes in a cage somewhere and she just launched an anarchist incursion on the University of Michigan library and I just love that somebody could do that and she just went in and for almost 30 years she worked there and very seldom was she actually on the payroll just a couple of years did she actually get money to work there most of the time it was I'm going to take this over for you people because you're clearly not up to the task right and she created this Collection. And she was not a professional librarian. So she invented a system that subsequent curators had to figure out and was often so, sort of mysterious. And she just wouldn't give up. And because she was already an activist and a known person, she had set up talks for Goldman and Berkman when they were mm-hmm. in Ann Arbor, and she'd done a lot of work with um, trying to help the people who were being deported, the anarchists who were being deported during the, red, the first, well, one of the first Red Scares in, after World War I, um, And she did a lot of other things, too. So she was already known as an activist. So people trusted her. And so they would call Agnes and they would say or write to Agnes and say, you know, Aunt Julie died. And there's this trunk in our attic of all this anarchist stuff she collected. And Agnes would say, I'm coming. And she'd get on a bus and she'd go and she'd sort the stuff through and have it shipped to the library. And so she expanded this collection many times over. And so here's Agnes corresponding with many, many, many people about building and organizing this collection. And then there were these two women that she of, of her correspondence, Bertha and Pearl Johnson. Bertha Johnson was not at all well-known. She was actually a farm wife in Pennsylvania who had was trained as a medical doctor but couldn't get work in rural Pennsylvania. So she turned to farm life. Um, her sister, Pearl Johnson, was uh, the partner of Benjamin Tucker, who was a famous printer and radical uh, anarchist uh, editor uh, in the Boston area. So Bertha Johnson and Pearl Johnson Tucker corresponded with Agnes Inglis. And in the process, they became both good friends and co-archivists because they had inherited libraries. Pearl from her husband, Benjamin, and Bertha from... um, other radicals in her parents' circle, um, (laughs) who the the material ended up in Bertha's house. So here's, she's this farmer and in her kitchen, in her pantry, there's a bunch of printed material that Mm -hmm. she knows is valuable and doesn't quite know what to do with. And so there's all this, all these letters between these women and you watch them kind of curate together and you watch Bertha and Pearl become apprentices to Agnes. To learn how to do curating. And you see how important the curatorial, the archival moment Mm -hmm. in this movement was. Um, And it was almost, it was often done by women. And because it's underestimated, it's just, well, they were keeping the stuff. Other people did the work of making it, and they're just keeping it. But that's not what archivists do. Archivists do this thing that contemporary media theorists call charting a path through information. They make it possible for me to come later and look at it they bring order to information and that's not an obvious task there's many ways that order could be brought so um i i love seeing there's there's a feminist theorist or a feminist writer named cynthia inlow who says the question we should always ask no matter what we're doing is where are the women and there were definitely women printers. Um, mm-hmm. There were women printers everywhere, but especially in anarchism, they would learn it from their fathers or their husbands usually, um, uh, because they typically couldn't get into the apprenticeship programs mm-hmm. that, that men could get into. Um, and uh, and there were certain there were anarchist women who edited and wrote for journals, but there were many many more anarchist women who did the librarianship of the mm-hmm. movement.
0: Kroger, fresh for everyone, fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. As someone who works in libraries and archives, there were reflections you had on, on that kind of labor that like really warmed my heart. <laughs> and you know, I think it it is, I mean, you're right. It's important to see that labor for what it is and see the way it's gendered and see the way um it actually functions as um as an important part of of the movement building. Um and one other thing that's coming out to me as you're saying all of this is the way these letters reflect, like, the relationship building that is so much a part and often an unarticulated part of, like, this um, community building and movement building as well. Um, yeah. And so then moving, I mean, there's a an interesting shift from your second chapter focused on writing between individuals to um, the third chapter looking at pro- projects that are written for a broader audience. Um, and as you examine, then the huge range of anarchist journals. Um, what did you discover about the political work that those publications do? How do those embody anarchist politics and not just report on it?
1: Well, I think in a, so many ways the, um the Journals they're, if there's such a thing as typically because they are all there many of them are very different one from another. but there is a, a kind of pattern um, that I've traced in the three sets of publications I looked at um, in closely for that chapter. Um, and there's that which is there's always a set of articles that is, uh, either about the movement or about the world from an anarchist point of view so what's going on in this strike what's going on in in this government who's cracking down on their radicals it was very international because they're their readership was very international. The anarchists all exchanged periodicals with each other. So every anarchist editor had a whole bunch of other periodicals in their office, not just the one they printed. Mm-hmm. So their offices became little libraries and people mm-hmm. could go there and see and read other things, other anarchist publications. So there's the stuff that is about anarchism. Um, and then there's the stuff that is what I would call more anarchistic that was movement building. Um, and there's kind of two ways to think about that. One is the, the back pages of the journals were filled with opportunities to participate in the movement
0: mm-hmm. so
1: everything from a cafe would advertise in, because they were friendly to radicals mm-hmm. or um, a, a chiropractor would advertise because they, they thought that they would tap a, a better clientele Mm -hmm. Or a, a promising clientele from political radicals. But there would also be announcements of when the next local meeting is. The local groups would write in. This is especially true for freedom in England, that the local groups would have little reports that they would write in, often written by women, often very funny, where they would talk about what they've done that month. And you know, they would have gone on a hike. There was this one great story where the anarchists went on a hike and a, a bunch of local Christians went on a hike and they all got caught in a downpour, so they took refuge in a barn, and they had a singing contest. I can just imagine, like, you know, the international up against, you know, uh, you know, whatever a hymn is uh, that I can't even think of a name of right now. Um, and uh, then they had lemonade together. And so <laughs> those are just the best stories. And so so there's, like, local reports. So if you're reading that, you know where to go if you want to get involved in an anarchist group in your neighborhood you you get a sense of the layout of the movement yeah. and there's you know there's opportunities you can go as i said and read other journals you can buy books that are being published if you can uh, afford books um, so the the there's a participatory dimension to mm-hmm. these pages that are often the back and often they're really really crowded together yeah. um, and then there's a third sort of anarchistic note that i Found that was powerful in these three sets of publications I'm looking at. I I can't say that it would be as powerful elsewhere, but it's two kinds of kind of mixed genre writing that were almost always done by women. And one of them uh, was noticed actually by an Italian uh, woman named Leda Raffinelli, um, whose work has only recently begun to be translated into English. Uh, Andrea Pockheiser made a, a, a short biography and translated some of her work um, in, a, in an English language book. And I'm really grateful because I don't know how to read Italian. And um, anyway, Raffinelli said these, she called them social sketches. And a social sketch is a cross between a short story and a poem. It tends to have vivid characters and settings, but hardly any plot. Um, and so you meet a person in a place that is stands out, it has, it has vitality, it has color to it. And they sort of take on some problem. They, they have a question or a problem. and the reader invited to participate in thinking about that problem through this very poetic, poetically written mm-hmm. semi-fiction. And then the other one, I've never heard anybody name, so I called them think pieces. And they are different in that they don't have that fictional element, like they don't have characters or a setting. They're more like essays where the writer's voice is very strong. They're often written in the first or second person, like either I think this, or you should do this. They're hardly ever in the distant third person. And they tend to combine what we would think of as an essay with what we would think of as a letter. So they're very much directly addressed to the reader as though this writer is talking to you and posing some kind of problem that you may have in your life because she is familiar with it in her life and inviting you to think about it together. So it's not a didactic kind of genre, it's an inviting kind of genre. And I I think that's that's really effective.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah, like a really fascinating range of of like content types that all are inviting participation in different ways. I really like the way those are delineated. Um, one thread that I was really interested and really excited to see reappearing throughout your book was your uh, continual turn to Moten and Harney's work, making use of their concepts of undercommons, fugitive public, and study as points of reference throughout the first three chapters. And then you return to their work more directly in the fourth chapter as you discuss ways that anarchist theory should and must be strengthened. How do you understand their framing of the Black undercommons as especially relevant to an understanding of anarchist journals and anarchist printing projects more broadly?
1: That book was really important. Uh, Milton and Harney's book with Jack Halberstam's very discerning Mm -hmm. introduction. I benefited a lot from thinking about an undercommons and and the concept of a, a fugitive politics and how it gave rise to, for them, this really rich notion of study and like like for undercommons that and i've written about that in other places as a kind of counter public where you know there's a publicness happening but it's the you know it's not it's not the main one it's more of an alternative um a subversive kind of public they really give that a lot more flesh that idea and i particularly honed in on study because one of the things that I that made me want to write this book and that kept keeping my enthusiasm high was how how this this these publications give us the footprints of a kind of really intense form of intellectual life outside of the university.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: um, now I work in a university and I have great respect for universities, but they're not the only place that thinking happens. Yeah. And um for Moten and Harney to really focus on the, the streets and the front porch and the kitchen and these places, uh, you know, the, the, the dance hall and the jazz club. And um, actually that was more Sarah um, Hartman, I mean, um, city Hartman's mm. uh, uh, mm-hmm. focus more on dance halls and jazz clubs, but together those two sort of, histories of Black activism helped me both to see the anarchists as doing their own kind of study Mm -hmm. that was the only tangentially attended to in universities. One of the reasons this this research is so challenging is that you'll find three copies of this journal in Berkeley and you'll find two issues of it over here in Amsterdam. And then there's a couple in London. And it's, it's not like anybody has all this, you yeah. know, the really good collections like um, Labadee and the International Institute for the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam mm-hmm. have a lot, but mm-hmm. they don't have them all the London School of Economics has some, uh, the British Library has some, and you just go around and try to piece it together. Yeah. Um, and so seeing the footprints of that intellectual vitality made me think, made, I could think it better when yeah. I thought about what they said study is how study works. So that, that was sort of helping me work out my, what I thought of the anarchist, but then sort of the flip side of that was realizing that how could they not have seen the black undercommons that work around them when they were so attentive to the least little peep of anarchism. Uh, like the, the, when when Emma Goldman and uh, Max Boginski, uh, who was a colleague of hers on Mother Earth, when they went to this Amsterdam conference on anarchism in, I think, 1907, and they wrote a report. And they basically reported on every little journal you never heard of because they were paying really good attention to what was going on. And it didn't have to be a big deal to be important. It just they they wanted they wanted to elevate the visibility of anarchist study mm-hmm. and the kid. But just down the road, there's black study. Uh, and if you're out there walking in the streets of New York or Philadelphia, as Sadi Hartman points out, how could you not notice that there's study going on in these other places too? And they don't call themselves anarchists, but it's very compatible. Um And so then I had to think about how could that have happened? Mm -hmm. Um, What produces that inability to see uh, something that's right up your alley if you just know to look? And I I came up with some ideas, and some of them I had already seen in Emma Goldman, because I asked the same question about her: How could she have been so attentive to class and race, uh, class and gender and sex and and you know all kinds of power and not give much attention? to race. So I I already had that question in my mind. And some and and one of the things I saw in this book that I hadn't seen before, was that maybe the anarchist devotion to the written word, while I find it admirable and, and inspiring, might have kept them from seeing other sensory practices as also expressing anarchist ideas like music. Mm, why not see that music is political why Mm -hmm. not see that jazz had a politics not just in its in who went to hear it which is part of it and where it happened but in the jazzness of jazz the arrangements
0: right the process matters in the way that printing the printing process matters yeah
1: exactly
0: yeah Yeah, I, I really liked those connections um, that you made. And then the final section of your conclusion looks at new materialism as a productive way for understanding the work of anarchist production and for strengthening anarchist theory more generally. I love the way you brought Jane Bennett's concept of thing power into dialogue here, and so I would love for you to share how new materialism was helpful for you in understanding the work that print culture embodies um, in radical politics. And how do you think that new materialism can guide us in the ways we make space literally and figuratively for the print culture we take part in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that was really exciting to me to have to find this theoretical corpus that gave me tools that I needed mm-hmm. to do what I kind of wanted, I wanted to do, but I, I didn't have a good language for it. And um, kind of anarchism, the anarchism I was reading in these, in this period of time, it didn't have a good language for this either. Like they they weren't very, they, they, they needed a push. And so what I came to was this notion that what I could do with new materialism is I could kind of reverse engineer the anarchist movement. And Go, you know, starting with what the outcomes were, and take some steps back through the process to see how it came to be that that process happened at all. And new materialism is so useful because it is a really good way to break down the idea of human exceptionalism—that like we're the only ones that kind of matter, and that everything is for us. You know, all the other animals, the earth. Uh, all the tools, all the objects that aren't animate—they they belong to us; that they're property. And of course, that doesn't work for anarchists because they, most of them, anyway, because they didn't—they um, didn't think in terms of property. They, that was a capitalist category. Um, but they—but what new materialism does is this notion of thing power is it forces you to not think of people as like walled cities. Like here's the boundary and the person is inside there. It makes you have to think that all of our boundaries are porous. Our skin is porous. Our our minds are porous. That there's all this commerce across borders and participants in that commerce. Sometimes there are other people, um, but some and sometimes there are other animals. Um, but they're also sometimes presses or hammers uh, or pencils and that. Seeing the the press interdigitate with the person, the way that the 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 actual non organic presence of a complex technology, a complex machine, with a lot of really compelling parts. It's pretty. It has a strong smell. It's colorful, like ink can be colorful. Um, the machines have a grace to them. Uh, printers talk about the press as mesmerizing. Hmm. Um, um, I, I met this research. I was, let me meet so many great people. A nun in New Jersey who is a, is a, uh, a member of the nunnery that Joseph Fischel gave his equipment to at his death in 1966. Sure. Uh, and so this Dominican organization uh, wanted to set up their uh, printery. And so they did. And their logo, which I dearly love, is a nun in full garb standing at the type case setting type on a composing stick. Really? And um, so uh, I talked to her on, e- on email and she t- she was the last person to learn to print on Joseph officials press. Wow. Um, that after she learned in the 90s they had to downsize because they didn't have enough members. And that's fortunately changed. But at the time they had to give up their print shop and I lost mm-hmm. track of it. I tried really hard to find where that press went because presses go places. Yeah, you know, yeah. they, somebody else will take it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's in somebody's basement. Somebody's printing, I don't know, grocery yeah. slips or something <laughs> on it. I I just, I want to find it.
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Um, well, before we wrap up, uh, I would actually love to hear what you're working on next. Um, especially, you know, really neat to hear how this came out of a previous project. And I'm curious if there are other research projects that this sparked for you, um, or that are completely different and now you have time for now that this book is done, uh, yeah, what are you working on? There's,
1: there are two actually, thank you for asking. The one that I'm trying to write now, having some trouble getting to it, but I'm enthused about it, is um, on wood engravers. Oh, because okay. the images in anarchist p- publications prior to photography, or, and often alongside photography, were wood engravings. Mm-hmm. Because you know, you, wood engraving is fascinating in the same way to me that printing is fascinating excuse me, it's fascinating because it requires such an intimacy with the physical objects that when you do wood engraving, you take a piece of wood, preferably something like boxwood, something hard, and you take these little tiny tools and you work, you produce something by working negative space. So everything you take out is the negative space and what you leave is the picture. Mm -hmm. And for sort of non-artistic people like myself who, I mean, I can draw a horse or a flower, but I draw the horse and what's inside is the horse and what's outside is not the horse. And that's the only way I know how to do it. Right. The idea that you can look at a blank piece of wood and see what you need to remove, not what you need to put in, what you need to take out for there to be a picture. It blows me away that somebody can even do that. Yeah. a colleague of mine who is a wood engraver, uh, her name is Mari Matsuda. She has a wonderful um, exhibit uh, in Honolulu right now. She says it's the proletarian art because <laughs> anybody with a tool and a piece of wood can do it. Um, and, a lo- and certainly some of the wood engravers that I've read about, uh, but I didn't write about in my book very much, they talked about the reason they thought wood engraving the reason they, their allegiance to it was it allowed their hand to be seen. That in the final product, the hand of the worker is present. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I find that really interesting. And I found some interesting correspondence between wood engravers. So oh, wow. I'm going to sort that through and figure out like what they were up to. It's some of the, these engravings are amazingly complex and beautiful. Uh, so that's project one. That's, that won't be a book i i think that's an essay but then a book that actually came out of the goldman book so this book's been on the back burner for a long time is on um i call it everybody but emma goldman it's all the other anarchist women uh, that i found have found in my research that are so little known mm-hmm. and Especially when you're studying Goldman, because Goldman is so often presented as this individual rebellious spirit. And she was a rebellious spirit. But she, I wanted to know what made it possible for there to be an Emma Goldman. And the answer mm-hmm. to that is the anarchist movement made that possible. And she totally knew that and recognized that about her own politics. But it's much easier to take one outstanding individual. So we've got a whole country of people who know a lot about Martin Luther King and nothing about the civil rights movement. Mm. Well, Goldman is like that. People know Mm -hmm. Goldman, but they don't know anarchism. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to situate her within the movement that she cherished. Yeah. Um, So I would read somebody saying, often in an anarchist journal or in a secondary literature, gee, it's too bad there weren't more women. Emma Goldman was the only woman. And then in that same journal, there'd be five more women. And they would have written an article or they would be the editor or they would be the printer or they would be running the bake sale that raised the money to print the journal. Well, those things, how could you not see that? They're right there. How could you not see them? Mm -hmm. So again, I started making lists. This is my methodology is make a list. And so I have a website with almost a thousand women on it. anarchist women, many of whom are completely unknown. Um, the website needs attention that like websites do because it's hard to revise you have to have some technical skills um but that's my next book is i want in my goldman book what i did was i brought goldman to the front and i pushed all those women to the back i want to bring those women to the front i haven't quite figured out how to write a book about a thousand people yet but i'm working on it.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, and. Try to try to my goal really is I want to bring women more into anarchism and show how important women were in the anarchist movement of that time. And then I want to bring anarchism more fully into feminism so that Goldman isn't this isolated feminist presence, but rather there were lots of anarchist feminists. There were lots of them. And hmm. they were inventing important things like intersectional thinking in the 1890s. Hmm. And you should know about that
0: hmm That's exciting. That's really exciting. Can't wait to read it. Thank
1: you. Um, Can't wait to write it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, and Once again, my guest today is Kathy Ferguson, author of Letterpress Revolution, published by Duke University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of New Books Network.